behavioral health challenges, notably substance use and mental health, are more prevalent than ever, but the behavioral health workforce is shrinking even as the need for equitable services grows. How did we get here? How can we turn the tide? And how can we incorporate social justice into those efforts? We'll address all these questions in this podcast miniseries. I'm Eric Tischler from Apt Associates, and joining me today are my colleague, Sarah Steverman, and our guest, Ron Manderscheid, Executive Director of both the National Association of County Behavioral Health and Developmental Disability Directors and the National Association for Rural Mental Health. Previously, Ron served as the Director of Mental Health and Substance Use Programs at the Global Health Sector of SRA International and in several federal mental health leadership roles at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sarah is a senior associate at APT. Her work focuses on mental health and substance use policy, research, and implementation. She is, among other things, the project director for the SAMHSA Evidence-Based Resource Center, a project to identify, evaluate, and disseminate best practices to the behavioral health field. Thank you both for joining me. Um, let's start with the basics. When we say behavioral health services, what are we talking about and why should we be concerned about the workforce? Number one, we are in the midst of a behavioral health emergency, not only because we had an inadequate workforce to begin with, but because of COVID. To look at the epidemiology, typically the percentage of the U.S. population that suffers from these problems is about 20% that has doubled to 40%. So we're in the midst of a behavioral health emergency. So an easy stat here. <laughs> Prior to COVID, we were only caring for 50% of the people who had behavioral health conditions. So the other 50% got no care. The numbers have doubled in COVID, which means we are only caring for about 25% of the people with these problems currently. So we are losing the battle here because we don't address our workforce issues. Secondly, we're also in the midst of a social justice emergency. And that should be very obvious to anybody who watches television and so on, anybody who you know participates in the conversation about Black Lives Matter and so on. And that social justice emergency extends also to behavioral health care. Uh, we need, have a serious need to eliminate disparities and promote equity in our own field. Great. Sarah, you want to you add to that? You want to give your perspective? Sure. To kind of even broaden this further, what we're talking about are disparities between the people seeking access. So people with low income, um, people of color, um, Black and Indigenous uh, people are less likely to access services, um, but they're also less likely to have opportunities to, to be um, leaders in the workforce. And so I think one of, one of the goals of our conversation today um, is to talk about both um, how, we, how we approach the workforce um, and behavioral health crisis in providing equitable access to care, um, both treatment and recovery, um, but then also promoting access to training and employment opportunities uh, for um, for people who have historically been uh, left out of decision-making and left out of the workforce. Great. So thanks for elaborating on that. Do you want to drill down a little bit um, on the social justice aspect, both in terms of um, who needs services and who's providing services? So yes, let me pick up on uh, Sarah's point here. So there are kind of several dimensions. I kind of view these as going through a door. So the first door you need to go through is, are you able to access care at all? Mm -hmm. And in that regard, we lose 50% at that door. 
50% of people with behavioral health conditions never access care. The next level of care is second door. Is the care appropriate? If you use evidence-based practices to say, is the care appropriate? Only about 5% of people who receive care actually receive care that we would consider evidence-based care. Third door, hardest door to get through, are you actually meeting the needs of the person who is receiving care? And it's in that domain that we get into issues of whether that care promotes recovery, whether that care is meeting the objectives of the person seeking care, and so on. So most of our discussion is about door one. We need to make sure we include door two and door three here as well. So um, so we've mentioned COVID, right, which obviously has huge immediate impacts. What are So let's look first at the short term. What are some things we can do as we start are hopefully turning the corner on COVID? What are some short-term solutions? We certainly have shortages that are related to COVID. Um, we have folks who left the workforce um, and probably aren't coming back, um, that they, they were providing services in person, um, and those jobs were either lost or, um, or, or changed. Um, we have problems with uh, retirement, um, which I know Ron can, um, can expand on, kind of the data around the number of folks who are retiring out of the workforce, and we have fewer people coming into the system. Um, and then, as we alluded um, earlier, we also have, um, have issues of diversity of the workforce. Um, and I, I have some thoughts on the the shortages issue and why fewer people are coming into the, the system, but maybe Ron, if you want to um, kind of expand on kind of the broader topics first. Okay, sure. So glad, glad to add to this. So, uh, you know, the, the categories that Sarah was talking about. So, so first the retirees. So we're at the point now where baby boomers are leaving the behavioral health workforce in very large numbers. They are part of the, population group that went through the economy, was always very active, and now they're retiring. An indicator of that level of retirement, 10,000 people a day start taking Social Security right now. And that's mm -hmm. going to be true every day between now and 10 years from now. Give you an idea of the flow of people. Well, it's no different in behavioral health. We have that same outflow in behavioral health. Big issue for us. Secondly, the next generation of people down are what I call the baby bus generation. This is the group that never really entered behavioral health because it was a difficult time. You think back 25 and 30 years, it was a very difficult time for behavioral health. There was very little money going into community behavioral health services. It was not widely recognized in the field. There was a fairly low level of respect for people who worked in the field. People did not come into the field. So we have a baby bust for the group that at this time would be moving into the managerial positions. Then kind of the next generation down the millennials. So what happens, millennials come in, they are at one place two, three years, they move on somewhere else, they churn, they stay at the same level. They have difficulty establishing a career hold into the field. And so they move so much and a large number of them actually leave the field and go on to other areas. So you can take any of those groups and look in all three of those things together, create problems for us. 
We also have difficulty recruiting. Uh, one indicator of that, for example, in psychiatry is that the average age of a psychiatrist has grown from 50 to 60 years in the last 15 years. That occurs when too few young people are entering the system. If you look at uh, diversity in that workforce, there are hardly any American Indian psychiatrists. There are progressively becoming more black psychiatrists, but there's still a small number within the field and so on. We may uh, add a couple elements to the problem here. We have not had any federal support for training through the traditional programs that used to be operated by the National Institute of Mental Health or by SAMHSA since 1994. That's more than 25 years. So we've kind of disappeared out of that environment. The one area in the federal training program that's still very active is the National Health Service Corps run by HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration. I believe they're currently training about 3,500 people per year in the behavioral health fields. It would be in psychiatry, it would be in psychology, it would be in social work. But that number is just, in effect, a drop in the bucket compared to what we need. I've been thinking a little bit about this issue of, um, of why millennials um, you know, grew up in a recession um, and the behavioral health system could have been a good place for them um, to land to find meaningful work. Um, and I wonder if, you know, uh, I think a good bit of it is around, um, is around policy and is around training. Um, but I also wonder if uh, one of the issues with shortages and fewer people coming to the system is um, that while we've, we've increased our ability to talk about mental health and substance use and younger generations are much more uh, aware and better versed in talking about um, mental health, mental wellness, um, substance use recovery, the behavioral health system is still a bit of a mystery and um, it's difficult to access. Um, it's often separate from medical care. Um, when you're a kid, you don't see it at all, right? You go to the pediatrician, maybe you go to the emergency department if you if you fall down and break your, your, your arm. Um, but it's a bit of a, an invisible system. And so, you know, when kids kids are, are growing up and they're going to college, they're they're going to medical school or they're going to graduate school, they're thinking, I want to be a doctor, but you know, I want to be a emergency medicine physician or a surgeon, or you know, I want to go to nursing school, but I want to be at the pediatric uh, you know pediatric nurse or a labor delivery nurse, um, but they're not thinking about being a psychiatrist or a or a psychiatric nurse. Um, and then other professions like an addictions counselor, social worker. Um, case manager at a community mental health center, like those are, those are nearly like unknown professions to, to people. Um, and so we need to, we need to put those opportunities for training in front of people. And also some of it may be a bit of a PR, you know, um, a PR job that we need to kind of bring the system um, and the, the workforce opportunities um, more out into the light. Um, so people want to, want to, um, want to be trained and want to join the workforce. To, to support your point, most high school textbooks on health education do not even include a mental health chapter. So it's absolutely correct. People aren't exposed to this. I also think, to follow up on your broader point, I don't think there are many role models of people who work in this field that are visible to the millennials and younger generations that are coming along. It just isn't very visible outside the field. So, you know, you're not going to turn on TV tonight and see a program 
about a psychiatrist as you might see a program about a physician or you might see a program about someone else working in another field. It just doesn't occur. So, okay, that's a lot of problems we've just listed. What are some step, steps we might take in the short term? What, 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 are the, what are the two of you thinking? What might we be able to do to help turn the tide here? So there are a broad number of things that can be done in the very short-term future here. We need to broaden the use of peers in service delivery, both on the mental health side and on the substance use side as well. We've made a lot of progress in that arena, but there's still many, many places where we need many more peers, and they are out there and want to do this. We're gradually getting in place the payment mechanisms through CMS to do this for Medicaid, Medicare, but we need to do more, and it's obvious. Right, Ron, if, if I, I'm sorry if I could interrupt for one second. When you say peers, you want to explain who you're talking about? Yeah, yes, peers are individuals who themselves have experienced a behavioral health condition and now want to help others who are experience these pro experiencing these problems because they know how to access the system, they know the types of problems that will be encountered when you're seeking care, and they're very empathetic with people who have these conditions. There are literally thousands of peers who would like to work with us in the field. We have to figure out a way to make that happen. So I was just going to ask, do we have do we have a recommendation for making that happen? Well, the, the recommendation for making it happen, we have to open up the payment mechanism so that it will happen. That is happening in CMS around Medicaid and Medicare. If I know the numbers correctly, currently about 47 states fund peer support services in Medicaid for mental health, only about 26 or 27 fund peer support services for substance use. That should be 50 and 50. We have more work to do here. Same thing in the private sector. We need to make certain that private sector insurance covers peer support as an essential service, basically. So some obvious things uh, that in the short term, something that can be done right now. We need to change Medicare requirements that don't require changes in law to permit additional workers to work in the behavioral health field, such as mental health counselors, such as marriage and family therapists, such as substance use counselors, such as bachelor level social workers. There's several categories here of workers who are not permitted to bill under Medicaid or Medicare currently Literally, by the flick of the pen, we could change that and change that situation. I was just going to um, even take a step perhaps back or, you know, concurrently as we're um, working on all of these issues. I think there's, um, there's a bit of a gap in our knowledge of uh, where we most need providers um, to land. And, and getting back to our, um, our opening conversation around social justice and and equity, you know, I think the answer is probably everywhere that there's shortages everywhere. It's 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 urban, it's rural, it's you know, all fifty states. Um, we know that HRSA has uh, healthcare shortage areas that they have identified, um, and and there are some data there. But I do think that there's there's probably room for us to. Um, better understand uh, what the state of the behavioral health workforce is um, and specifically where those shortages are most acute and what types of providers, what level of training those providers uh, may have. 
Um, and, you know, we've done an app, uh, uh, some work trying to drill down um, uh, and working with lo localities to try to do an assessment of their workforce and, and their systems capacity. And it's, it is really difficult work. It's difficult to know who's working and where um, and whether or not they're working up to their um, up to their licensure. Um, it's difficult uh, and time-consuming work, but I think it would help us to more equitably distribute those training grants or more equitably distribute um, those uh, those provider spots if we knew kind of where those shortages uh, were most acute. So let me add to what Sarah was just saying here. So SAMHSA has funded a project at George Washington University in D.C., to pull together the available data on human resources in behavioral health care from wherever they can pull it. And that project is well advanced and actually is now arriving at the stage where they're able to provide estimates both nationally, by state, and down into local areas. That data will greatly help us to understand exactly the issue that Sarah was raising. The issue going forward is, we need to collect that data on a continuing basis, in effect, every year, and that's not happening. Uh, secondly, HRSA funds a center called the Behavioral Health Workforce Research Center, the purpose of which was to do a number of things. It was to develop a minimum data set for human resources in behavioral health. That minimum data set was taken originally from work that I did when I was in SAMHSA, where we created a system called Decision Support 2000 Plus, and one of the dimensions of that was the human resources minimum data set. Uh, the work of the, the HRSA Center has updated that, but the HRSA Center is also doing fairly small local studies to understand some of the issues. Do people actually work up to practice standards and guidelines and licensure? Uh, what are the deficits in the workforce in particular, in, in rural areas versus urban areas? There are a whole number of things that they are taking on. So to the credit of SAMHSA and HRSA, these things are actually underway and should be encouraged, basically. So, so great. That's stuff that we're talking that we can do in the short, relatively short term, right? Looking, looking down the road beyond this, what should we be tacking towards in terms of, of longer term solutions? We, we've realized the things we can do to identify the problems, identify gaps. Um, once identified, what can we do maybe moving forward beyond that? So let, let me start again. And I, I guess the context on this, and I just learned this this morning, there was an article in this morning's Politico that the Congress is interested in moving ahead on behavioral health human resources, which is wonderful to hear. So when they move ahead on that, what they're going to need to have in order to make progress they are going to need to have a strategic plan. So part of what we need going forward here in the little longer run, we need to update the strategic plan that was developed for human resources in behavioral health now 15 years ago and make it applicable to the current situation, number one. Number two, we need to develop centers of excellence via federal grants of best practices in human resource training, and best practices in human resource practice in behavioral health that can be that have results that can be broadly disseminated throughout the field. And then thirdly, 
I think my own view, and I've advocated for this for years, so nothing new here, we need a large federal training program. By large, I mean 300 to $500 million a year going into this to actually make it possible to increase the diversity of the workforce, to overcome some of the disparities that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast and other things. That uh, type of concept has been proposed in the past, but has not yet gone anywhere. Because of the changed view of behavioral health, especially in this COVID era, I think there's a much more positive view of behavioral health and those types of things would stand a chance of actually happening now, or they might not have even a year or two ago. Sarah, do you want to weigh in though on the on the topic of longer term solutions? I think we might want to talk a little bit more about what this training might look like. One of the things that we've been um, talking about in behavioral health workforce and behavioral health systems for a long time is um, integrated care. And um, you know, I think what we're talking about is. It, again, we get back to we need these large training grants. Um, who are we going to train and how are we going to train them? We've been talking about um, inter, interdisciplinary care um, for for quite a while now, um, or integrated care. And we've done quite a bit of work at the intersection of HIV and um, mental health and substance use here at APT. And um, what we found again and again through our evaluations and our technical assistance is that um, while there have been there's been quite a movement to co-locate or to have HIV providers and uh, behavioral health providers providing care to the same person um, in the same setting or the same system with a shared EHR um, and a shared treatment plan, the providers generally are working sort of independently. The HIV provider is working on HIV, they're the HIV uh, screening and treatment um, and is aware that the, their client is getting behavioral health care um, and vice versa. The behavioral health provider, um, you know, is, is making sure that they're seeing their HIV treatment provider, making sure that they're um, they're taking their meds um, or reminding them, um, but they're not, you know, tracking their viral load and um, and having much concern for the HIV treatment that's needed um, and the, and their health. So, um, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of where we can go to um, try yes. to um, yes. better and, integrate? Yeah, absolutely, excellent point. So, I guess a couple of uh, things to be said about this. So, first. You know, if you distribute and you look at where behavioral health care is provided today, about 20% of behavioral health care is currently provided by specialists, and about 80% is currently provided by primary care physicians. So the critical issue of how we bridge these two worlds is very important. And as you say, we've been working on integrated care or the process of integrating care for a while, and there are huge opportunities in that area. That area will only work well if we develop training that prepares people to work in integrated settings. And the work that's ongoing now, some of my students at USC are doing this work, for example, is what's called interdisciplinary team training, where they will team a behavioral health provider, like a psychiatrist, with a primary care physician, not in a classroom setting, but in a practice setting where they will then look at different clients and they'll learn how they can work with each other, how they can better work as a team and so on. So uh, 
that type of training, I think, is going to increase dramatically as we go forward. Transdisciplinary training goes an additional step and says, how can I, as a behavioral health person, also have training in one of these other fields so I can be more effective in what I do. So I think we're gonna see that type of expansion and training as well going forward. I think that's farther in the future than is interdisciplinary training, which is beginning right now and is exceptionally important if we're going to be able to actually do integrated care in the way that it's been envisioned in the Affordable Care Act uh, going forward here. Other thoughts for the, for the future of how of how we can sort of meet these needs, you know, as you point out, Ron, there's a huge gap. There, there, there are a few other things we can add here. One that I would want to add, I think, you know, there's a lot of progress being made in the use of uh, virtual reality and artificial intelligence. And that today takes the form of very short apps. And you can now actually, if you practice in these fields, you can prescribe an app to people as part of their treatment. And that's fully recognized by the Food and Drug Administration and so on. We need a lot more work on development of these apps, understanding which apps actually deliver evidence-based practices that make a difference, which apps don't harm you, and so on early stage of this work. As we go down five years and 10 years, we're gonna be moving more and more into the use of artificial intelligence to supplement some of our provider shortages where more and more care will be given by smart systems, for example, a system trained to give cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which we have already. But to go the next step, with virtually no provider present, to use those tools at the prescription of a provider because that is the type of care that's needed and that provider can, can expand, I think, dramatically the number of clients they'll be able to work with using those artificial intelligence tools and virtual reality tools. I think there's a lot of huge opportunity coming in those fields as we go ahead. That work needs good leadership from the federal level. So it's a call, again, for the federal government to become much more engaged in work on apps, work on artificial intelligence, and work on virtual reality. This exact issue that Ron is talking about is something that we've been doing quite a bit of work um, through our evidence-based resource uh, contract. And, you know, as, we, as we've, we've been digging into the, to the literature, digging into the research, and there's uh, quite a bit of research on telehealth, what we know is sort of synchronous um, synchronous telehealth that has sprung up, uh, especially since COVID, where um, a provider provides a service that is hopefully evidence-based through a computer screen or through the telephone that they normally would have done in person. And what Ron is talking about with these asynchronous um, apps and programs um, and artificial intelligence um, is... I think I do. I think it's the future, but I, I do want to underscore that the research is just uh, seems to be very, very new, and we do need. Um, you can imagine a scenario where um, where these could 
explode, and it would be very difficult for providers to figure out what they should be essentially yes. prescribing to their um, to their clients, or what they should be recommending to their clients, or uh, you know, uh, what a what a a person um, who's seeking some some amount of help and treatment um, and looking looking at the app store or looking you know googling um, is able to to know what they're getting is actually evidence based, what it's, that it's going to help them and certainly not harm them. And so I just want to underscore your point, Ron, that we need um, we need leadership and we need a, a research agenda probably around this, um, something something very formal where um, where these new technologies are being um, are being rigorously tested um, to ensure that they um, they do work and they don't harm. Yeah, excellent. I agree completely. Agree completely is always a good place to, to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Stop um, while you're ahead, basically. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Before it gets ugly. <laughs> well, I just wanted to, you know, I think we've set out here a lot of the concerns that we have with the behavioral health workforce and um, and a lot to be done. There's a lot of work to be done, and there's a, a call for um, for leadership and funding and policy change, and all of that is difficult to do. Um, but I do want to kind of bring us back to the beginning where we were discussing um, this as a, as a social justice movement. And I, I think there's two huge areas of hope, which is, um, you know, the first is that there's this increasing awareness of the importance of equity and social justice. Um, as Ron said at the beginning, we are, we are talking about this all the time. It is um, it is everywhere, and I hope that we continue to, to talk about it and to um, reorient our systems and reorient our thinking and reorient our policy and our research to be thinking about issues of equity um, and, and measuring it and, um, and looking to, to transform um, our systems um, in a way that bends toward social justice. Um, and then I think in the same way, and, you know, we've mentioned this, but just to underscore that there's been... It also, at the same time, an increasing awareness in how common mental health and substance use needs are, um, that it is that is something that touches every family and um, and everyone throughout the lifespan. And so um, I think that as as both issues of equity and issues of mental health and substance use um, needs become uh, more, you know, come more into the light, I think that um, we'll be able to make some progress um, on these uh, very, very hard problems. Very nice. Ron, anything you wanted to add? Amen. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, great. You know, um, you guys have laid out a lot of issues that we want to address. And the good news is we're going to pack at least some of this in the subsequent episodes of this podcast series. Mm -hmm. uh, so thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, appreciate it. And thank you for listening to this apt podcast.